Shalom, shalom, shalom. Hey, what's going on? My name is Michael Sano, and welcome, welcome, welcome to the 12 Cities in Israel podcast. I have the distinct honor of sitting here with Hannah Mason. Said it right. Are you so happy? Hannah Mason, a vitality coach and author of Hold That Thought, a really great book that has wonderful insights on helping you be the best you. Welcome. Thank you very much for having me. How's it going? It's going amazingly well. So thank you so much for coming on to this show. I am really excited about it. And before we get going, I want to tell you how you wound up on this show. So I have a bunch of friends on Facebook and Yishai Fleischer, a bunch of different people. And Shoshana Keats Jaskal is one of them. And I think that's actually where I, where it clicked. So I saw your smiling face, your, um, what do they call it? Your, uh, your, your, not your logo, your, uh, when you go and you update your profile picture, that's it. Yes. Hi, we're live. How are, how are you? Um, I saw your profile picture just about everywhere. Everyone was friends with you. And I was like, who is this person? She's popping up everywhere. And I went and I looked into you a little bit and then I looked for you on YouTube when I, that's where it happened. And I called my wife into my office and I said, holy cow, Steph, you've, you've got to see this person. I have to get this person on my show. And she goes, okay, hit play. And you came on and she was like, yes, yes, yes. Welcome to the show. I've never met anyone with so much energy who wants to help literally the world. It feels like, um, be better thems um that's probably phonetically incorrect but hey what are you doing um if so, Shakespeare can do it we can do it it's absolutely all good. absolutely so tell me a little bit about so where do you come from so I was born in Bogota Colombia wow and when I was five years old we fled to the U.S. in kind of a traumatic way and ended up in Miami where I grew up Okay. So my comfort language is Spanglish. <laughs> so if you want to run this podcast in Spanglish, podemos hablar un poquito de español, we'll be good. Um, and uh, so I grew up spending my summers in Colombia, so I still very much feel connected to Latin American culture, and Miami is basically a suburb of Colombia, so it's still oh, very absolutely. much. And uh, I went to college in the northern United States and then lived for a year in Australia. And about 20 years ago, I came to Israel for two months to to study. I wanted to get more of a Jewish education. Okay. And after two weeks, I realized I should probably stay for a little longer. And that little longer is still going. Oh so my it's gosh. really great. Yeah. Well, why did you feel the need for that Jewish education? Can you go a little bit into that? So I grew up like most... Um, most American Jews going to Hebrew school. And in our generation, Hebrew school basically meant a lot of Holocaust. It was like all of the Holocaust education that our parents' generation didn't get (laughs) all got put onto us. So I feel like I just got a lot of uh, six million people died, marry a Jew. And I was really heavy. So my husband and I are still so traumatized by that, that we like don't want to go to Holocaust museums. We don't talk about the Holocaust. We're like too over Holocausted out. Um, and I felt like I didn't know so much about our tradition, mm-hmm. but something that I wanted to do since I was about five years old was, uh, keep Shabbat and keep kosher. Like I kind of knew that those things existed and I always wanted them in my life, 
but I didn't really know how to live a Jewish life, and I felt like I needed an education to make that happen, and I also felt like I needed an education in order to choose what kind of Jewish life I wanted, and I had this really rich Ivy League secular education, which allowed me to have so many life choices about what I wanted in my secular life um, and in my professional life, but I didn't know enough to really make intelligent, educated decisions about what I wanted in my Jewish life. So that was really important to me. So where did you get, so a lot of my, so I didn't have a, a traditional Jewish upbringing, any of that. Um, I didn't find out till later that even that I was Jewish. Um, so a lot of my Jewish education came from uh, City College of New York and the Jewish studies program and coming to Israel. Where did yours come from? What, where did you, where did you look? So there, I'm sure there are going to be quite a few viewers and listeners who have these questions. Where, where did you go to find the answers? Well, so now there's so much stuff online, but back then the internet was still pretty young. Chabad.org, I think. Yeah. Right. Yeah. There's like a million things online, but back then it was very young. And, um, I decided to just start keeping Shabbat when Mm -hmm. I moved to Sydney, Australia and I put it out there. I keep Shabbat, I keep kosher, and I kind of just plugged into the Jewish community. And so many people adopted me, particularly South African Jews. They were really amazing about adopting me. Oh, and there wow. were all these other single people who were newly keeping Shabbat. And they just took me in, and I kind of learned through doing. And I came here to learn, and I went to two different seminaries. There's one in Jerusalem called Midrash Rachel, and another mm-hmm. one um, called Nishmat. And I really stayed in Nishmat for a few years because it's a very Zionist place. It's mostly Israelis. So I learned a ton of Hebrew there and very much became a part of the local culture, which was really important to me. No, that's excellent. That's wonderful. Now, so going back a little bit, you decided to come to Israel. You decided you needed to be here. What prompted that? Was there, is there any, what was the catalyst? So one thing that I tell people is if you live in the United States and you want your kids to have a connected Jewish experience, send them to Jewish camp. Like, (laughs) you know, I I see that there's a lot of uh, foundations that are really into sending kids to Jewish camp. Totally works. I got totally brainwashed (laughs) by Camp Judea, really gung-ho about Israel, really wanted to come here. Um, And my parents were scared to have me come. It was during the Antifadas. They didn't want me to come. And when I was 19 years old, I looked at my mother in the eye, remember this, and I said to her, I'd rather make it to Israel and never come back than never make it at all. Whoa. And with so much conviction, my mother's like, okay, go. I'm going to keep my mouth shut, which was really cool. And so off I went to Israel, and I did a program called Leave Note, Ulehiba Note. And (laughs) they uh, are based in Sfat, and they welcome all sorts of Jews, mostly unaffiliated and uneducated Jews like myself, to come to Israel and volunteer, hike the land, and they kind of offer lots of different Jewish experiences as a buffet. That's really their philosophy. We have a buffet philosophy, check out what you want, keep what you want, don't keep what you don't want. Um, And the volunteer experiences and the hiking experiences were really cool. And they attract a lot of like cool, outdoorsy, funky people. And so it it was just a great crowd. And while I was at Leave Note, I overheard two people having a conversation about this thing called yeshiva, where you could like go and get a Jewish education. And I didn't know that such a thing existed. I was so clueless. I lived in Miami, which is like a very Jewish place, but it never occurred to me to like call a rabbi or ask for help. Like I just didn't know. Well, there's fear too. There's that embarrassment on, I've experienced it. Of just like feeling stupid or something. You're going to think I'm not Jewish enough. 
No, I didn't have that. I really just, it didn't well, occur to me. That you're lucky then. Yeah, it just really didn't occur to me. Okay. So I heard that there's this thing and I was like, oh my gosh, I can get myself a Jewish education. So I got it in my head that one day I was going to come back to Israel and get an, get an education. I was really excited about That's it. That's really cool. Now, you were up in Tzvat and a lot of people don't know about it. Sometimes when you mention it and the historical importance of it, um, can you just, and you don't have to go into the history. I'm not asking you to, to unpack that. Uh, but could you just describe the area and what it's like for a few moments? Sure. So Tzvat is a very small city located in the north of the country in the Galil. Mm -hmm. and uh, a little bit north of the Sea of Galilee, of the Kinneret. And um, it just has this magic to it. There's a lot of Kabbalistic tradition there. The great Kabbalists of the 1500s um, really brought so much uh, deep inner mystical Torah to life there. And that has still kind of remained like this like remnant. There's little sparkles. It's almost like pixie dust. It's just like all <laughs> over the city. Um, and it's, we also say that it's the city of air. And that's what it feels like. For me, it's just like it's kind of up in the clouds a little bit. Wow. And I struggle to stay grounded when I'm there. Um, but while I was in Sfat, there was this incredible festival that happens every August called the Klezmer Festival. Yes, I've heard of festival. it. I was hoping you would. Okay, go yeah. on. So it happened to be right when my program was that it was with this festival. And I had made these two really close girlfriends and we did everything together while we were on this program. And we just like followed around <laughs> this one musician from soundstage to soundstage because we really liked him. His name is Aaron Rezel. Aaron Rezel now happens to be my neighbor. Like Whoa! Literally, my neighbor. When he and his family are singing, it goes into our courtyard. We're like we're that physically close. <laughs> and while he was doing this klezmer festival, he was learning in yeshiva in Spot at the time with my husband Dave. Whoa! Yeah. Whoa! Yeah. Who's off camera? That's why. I, <laughs> that's why I just turned. So wow. So it was just kind of like a little like hint from God, like oh, this is going to be your future. Oh, by the way, that's hey, great. Just so you know. Um, that is so wonderful. Um, now that still hasn't, you haven't moved yet. You haven't made Aliyah now, correct? Oh, right. Yeah. That was just like a summer. Program. Yeah. That was a summer program. Mm -hmm. So now you've got it. You've, you're feeling it. You have to, um, you make Aliyah. So that was me just saying, I have to come back to Israel. The idea mm -hmm. of Aliyah wasn't even on the table at the time because okay. I came back to the United States after doing that program finished my last year of college, moved to Australia, worked in management consulting, like in a fancy suit, <laughs> in a fancy, uh, you know, building, like people can't imagine it now, but I did. And um, when I finished that year of management consulting, I was kind of, it wasn't creative enough of a job for me, but I got an incredible business education. So it was phenomenal. I was like, okay, I'm going to go to Israel and then I'm going to come back to Sydney and get a master's degree in theatrical directing. Whoa. That was my plan. And I, and I left all my stuff in Australia and I went to Israel and never came back. I still haven't been back to Australia. I'd that's like to wonderful. go, but I haven't been back. No, you got to get your stuff. <laughs> um, no, that's awesome. Now, um, any difficulties, any acclimating, getting used to things, um, what, what stands out in your mind as the, oh man, are you serious? Kind of moments. So I'm not, I'm not really great at answering that question. And, and I'll tell you that it's because I hold a certain perspective in my mind all mm -hmm. the time. So there's something Tony Robbins says. He talks about how in our lives we have a blueprint of what we expect life to be like. Mm -hmm. 
And if our life is beyond that blueprint, like let's say your blueprint is to make $100,000 a year. If you're okay. making 120, you're high as a kite. If you're making 80, you're depressed, even though 80 is pretty good, right? <laughs> Definitely. Right? So if, and if your blueprint's a million and you're making 800,000, you're doing really good, but you're <laughs> still going to be bummed because you're not meeting your blueprint. So when it comes to living in Israel and making Aliyah, I've made my blueprint um, very different from most people. So wow. most people who come from North America and Europe, their blueprint is that their lives should be as comfortable and easy as they were when they were home. Mm-hmm. My blueprint is um, thinking about the people who made Aliyah 100 years ago and were living without much food and under tremendous attack and in danger without an army to protect them and didn't see their families and had to come on a boat. And if they wanted to go back to America, they had to go on another boat for like a month. Oh my God. That's my blueprint. So I always feel like everything's great, you know? So sometimes I'm dealing with like the bank and there's like an annoying detail, but it's the same annoying detail I might deal with anywhere else in the world because banks can sometimes be annoying. But I don't, my frame of reference is very different. And it's also when we came to the United States, it took us 10 years to get citizenship. <laughs> here, it took me a month. Like, wow. I just think life here is so easy because my blueprint is so low. Okay, perfect. So I'm always high as a kite. No, that's wonderful. That's yeah. wonderful. Um, you didn't have any trouble answering that question. You answered that question in, from my perspective, the way that everyone should probably answer that question. Now, this, of course, this perspective goes into your book. Um, talk to me about how you started to develop this perspective. What, what were the roots of Basically changing your attitude towards the world, because that's that's my perspective on it, but you may have different terminology. No, that's that's pretty spot on. It's like we have all these beliefs about ourselves, about the world, about God, and my collection of beliefs made me unhappy all the time. Um, not all the time, but a lot. And I became aware of this idea of beliefs and how they affect us at some point in late 90s, early 2000s, but I didn't, it didn't click for me. Like I hadn't, it kind of hovered around here. You know how sometimes like there's ideas that kind of hover around. So in Kabbalistic terms, we talk about something being makif. It's like circling your head, like the birds circle your head in the cartoons, (laughs) but it hasn't really kind of like digested into your day-to-day life. So what made it really click and digest is that a girlfriend of mine found a book of Byron Katie's called Loving What Is. And she read that book and zipped through it and handed it to me. She's like, this is it. This is what we've been looking for. And I read it and I was like, oh my gosh. And I handed it to another girlfriend. And that went around my neighborhood to about 10 of us. <laughs> and we decided to, like, this is a group of my girlfriends, all peers, just moms who live in the neighborhood in central Jerusalem. We live in Nachlaot in this funky, artsy place. <laughs> and we got together once a week for a few years and worked this really, really simple material that helped us understand how much our thinking and how much our beliefs are affecting our day-to-day lives. And I proceeded to use those tools over and over and over again. And because of that, I started creating more tools to help me use those tools and kind of expand um, how I can use it with other people. And I started facilitating other people in these dialogues and then eventually turned into a coaching practice. And I just keep adding more tools to my tool belt that I've learned from other people or that I make up. So something that I got from my background in theatrical directing, 
I don't know how I do this. It's just like a gift from God. But when I, when I work with actors, it's very similar to when I work with clients. I see they're stuck in understanding how to get from where they are now in their understanding of a character's journey to really getting a character. And usually I'll create an exercise that helps them experience it and shift into a different perspective. So I do the same thing with my clients where I see they're like stuck and I'm like, okay, how do we shift this? Let's create some sort of exercise or let's create a visualization or a meditation or whatever. And I just create one on the spot. Wow. So it's a cool, I don't know, kind of gift that I have. No, that's, that's great. So that's what I've done. I've created tools like that that help people get things in their heads a little bit more easily. So one tool that I have that would be cool just to share with you. Of course. Is um, one of the things that people struggle with is that they have a desire of something that they want in life. So let's say I'd really like to um, to get married. Sorry, I'm already married. I have a really great husband. Thank <laughs> God you're going to you know talk with him later on. So, But let's say I'm a single woman and I want to get married. I have a client who is in this situation. And um, on the one hand, she wants to get married. And on the other hand, there's a whole story that she has that makes it difficult for her to get married. So I have this tool called Just Desserts, and you, I have my clients create a chart, and on one side of the chart is all of the reasons that they feel like they want or deserve this thing, right? So for her, it would be to get married. Mm-hmm. And then on the other side, it's all of the reasons why she feels like she doesn't deserve it. And that list is what we work on. That list becomes all the reasons she feels she doesn't deserve it, every single one of those beliefs is blocking her from meeting the guy or from seeing the guy who's in front of her. So if she believes that she's not lovable and she's dating a guy who's really great and very kind to her, every time he does something nice to her, if she believes she's not lovable, she has to, in her mind, manipulate his behavior. Yes. Right? So like, let's say he you know, buys her a necklace what her mind will do is, well, he's not doing this because he loves me because I'm not lovable. So he must be trying to manipulate me. What does he want from me? Maybe he's just trying to get me to sleep with him, right? Mm-hmm. And, and if she's thinking that way, eventually it's going to get really tiring for the guy because he no longer feels like what he's giving is yeah. received. And we want to be able to receive what other people give and also give to other people and have what we give be received. And there's kind of no relationship there. Like she's always seeing him as twisted even though really it's just her mind that's twisted. Wow. Now what's the, and, and, and I don't know if it would happen, but people can tend to be stubborn. People have, people enjoy being who they are, whether it's good for them or not. What are the risks of reinforcing like the negative list? Do you understand what I mean? Yeah. So, so it's, so people come to me because they want to be happier. Mm-hmm. You know, that's sort of like a like a basic thing. Like, okay. This is why you're in the room, right? So let's say you came to me as a client or you came to one of my workshops or retreats and you're like, hey, I want to be happier. So I use that as a, as a basis point. Mm-hmm. So I'll ask you, if you're believing the thought that you're not lovable, how do you feel? Uh, not loved. And how do you feel in your body? Um, not, not good. Not good. Not physically good. Yeah. And do you feel happy? When you're believing that you're not No, not at all. Right. Okay. So right away we can say this thought isn't serving your goal of happiness. No, it's not. Right. So, but the cool thing is that you might be like, yeah, but who cares if it doesn't serve that goal? It's true. Yes. And I'm very into truth. That's that stubbornness you got. You're like, that's, I'm stubborn and I really want to believe what's true. Mm -hmm. So, so check this out. 
You ever taken a lie detector test? I feel like you might have with all of your life experience. A couple here and there. Okay. Do you know how they work? Um, Neuro uh, sensation electro stuff. Okay. How's that? That was the worst description <laughs> of how it works. No, it's actually pretty good, right? So <laughs> they're they're measuring your stress response. Mm-hmm. Okay, so it just so happens that when you tell the truth, your body is relaxed and open, and when you're telling a lie, you go into a stress response. So stress response for everyone is slightly different, but it's similar enough that a machine can measure it. So you your muscles will tighten, your heart rate goes up your breathing gets shallow, your vision narrows. And this is really important, right? When you're fighting in war, you need all of those things. Mm-hmm. You need your muscles to tighten. You need your heart rate to go up because you got to go, you know, attack whoever is attacking you. That's really important. You also want your vision to narrow so you can really be focused. On a day-to-day basis, when you're reacting to something like I'm not lovable, having all of that physiology is really not helpful because another thing that happens is that your immune system shuts down. Oh, this is the stress relationship to, yeah, yeah, go on. So when you're in fight or flight, your immune system shuts down because in the presence of an enemy, who cares about a virus? It's just not important, Mm -hmm. right? So the body just decides that this is not relevant right now. I'll deal with the virus later once I've dealt with the enemy, okay? The other thing that shuts down is digestion because it's also like, who cares about, you know, the French fries in your stomach if you're dealing with the enemy? It's like, okay, the French fries can wait till later until I've dealt with this like immediate danger, right? So your body goes into a stress response when you, which is what you just did, right? You said you mm-hmm. didn't feel good. Your body kind of, I saw it, right? It kind of closed in. <laughs> no, it, got tight. it didn't. You were like, I don't know what you're talking about. Right? In response to the belief that you're not lovable, that's what your body did. And had you been connected to a lie detector test, it would have pinged that you were lying. Wow. Because you went into a stress response and that's how the machine knows. And so someone could say, oh, well, I want happiness. I'm like, great, let's help you move towards happiness. If they say I want truth, I'm like, okay, great, let's help you move towards truth. Because clearly this isn't make you, making you happy. And a lie detector would tell you that you're lying. <laughs> so I love using the science to help kind of reinforce what reinforce, y- yeah. yeah. Because sometimes people will try to sort of logic their way out of the stuff. They're just like, oh, just the fact that I'm not feeling good, that's not reason enough. Can you go into that? Because that's a chapter in your book, logicking your way out of uh, out of feeling good. So it's, uh, I'm sorry, it, it's, so using logic, or maybe it's part of a paragraph in one of the chapters in your book where you say using logic is... Um, you use it to reinforce a lot of the uh, the negative feelings that you have inside. Well, I should uh, feel this way. Actually, right. you know. Yeah. So one of the things we do is we either use logic or we use pictures. We tend to think in pictures a lot. Mm-hmm. So let's say you believe that you're not lovable. I'm, I I don't want to keep putting this on you, but let's why just are you doing it, right? this? To me I don't now. know. This Go just on. came into my head. I don't know, <laughs> right? Because it's easier for you to be a real human being than for us to talk about a pretend human Absolutely. being who's like not in the room, Absolutely. right? Absolutely. So if you're believing that you're not lovable, and the reason I'm bringing that one up because that's like a really universal belief that like most people struggle with, really, even if just a little bit, yeah. Oh, wow. Okay. There's a lot of universals, right? So that's what was so cool about doing this work with a group is I got to see, it's like, oh, we all have the same stuff. So beliefs don't bother me anymore. When I hear somebody be like, I'm not lovable and they start to cry and they freak out. I'm like, oh, it's just a thought. She'll be fine. So, (laughs) right. Wow. So let's say you're dealing with you're not lovable, right? Okay. So what will happen, and it's probably happening right now, is your mind will start showing you a movie. It'll be like a 
slideshow mm -hmm. of all of these different scenes that prove that to be true. That's part of how you logic your way, right? You're creating all okay. of this support for like, this is true because of this and because of this and because of this and because my mother didn't say this and my father didn't say that and this ha this event happened and that event happened and, and because I can't seem to get anything right and blah, blah, blah. And like you have like all of this supporting movies and statements and thoughts and whatever to to buster up or I don't know what the word is, but like to boost <laughs> buttress. up. Buttress, thank yes. you. No to buttress your belief. And what you don't do is pay attention to the opposite of your belief. I am lovable. So every piece of evidence that supports that you're lovable, what your brain will do because it's so attached to this one and so stubborn, it will ignore all of this. Totally wow. ignore it. It'll ignore all of the kind things that people have done for you, all of the kindnesses you've done for yourself or for other people, um, all of the ways that things have just like worked out beautifully. Like today, I wanted to come here. I got, I walked to the train station and the train worked. It doesn't always work, but it worked for me today, <laughs> right? And then, and then I got on a bus and the, and the bus just like magically appeared. And there was this man who was like driving this vehicle that magically rode me all the way to here. And I can experience how much love there is in all of the different moments and all the people and machines that had to work together to bring me here to where I am. And that's part of how I, I give myself like love is just by noticing all of that happening. But if I believe that I'm not lovable, I'll ignore all of that evidence mm -hmm. because it doesn't support my belief. So what I help people to do is to start paying attention to all of that evidence. And so I say, oh, well, what's, what's the opposite of this? This is like Byron Katie's like big novel thing that she brings into the world is to help people see the opposite of the original thought. Well, you are lovable. And you have to give evidence for why that's true because you want to buttress up this different way of thinking. And this is how people go from narrow, stressful consciousness into an open consciousness. In Judaism and in Kabbalistic thought, mm -hmm. we call this mochin de katnut. This is like child's mind or or um, small-mindedness. Mm -hmm. And mochin de gadlut, expanded consciousness or adult consciousness, where you're able to hold lots of different perspectives and you're able to explore possibilities. And this is a state of curiosity. Wow. Well, one of the things that you're able to do, and I would love to know the story of how you got the person to do this. Um, in all of the chapters, at the beginning of all the chapters, you have illustrations and you illustrate every single one of these concepts in such a way that as you're reading the chapter, you go back and look at the picture and you go, yeah, all right, I get it. Okay, yeah, this makes sense. I see that. The pillars, okay, all right. Yes, I get this. So, um... Who, who did that for you? So um, I actually went on Freelancer and put up a contest. And the guy who won the contest, his name is Eduardo Comilio. He's from Argentina. Wow. He's just like a genius cartoonist. He really is. You should show people one of the cartoons so they know what you're talking about. All right. Um, and, and he's so fun to... Uh, this is the one I was talking with. about, the Tower of Babel. Exactly, the Tower of Babel. This is people buttressing up their beliefs. And once you start knocking over one pillar, mm -hmm. the building starts to topple. If you get enough pillars, the whole thing collapses. So I would give him just like a one sentence. We had this like Google Doc and because there were 23 drawings he did for me. And I'd just give him a one sentence description of what I want. And he would draw it. Well, he perfectly illustrated everything just, that you, every concept that you had. Um, one of those concepts that I would like to talk about is it's it's integral to uh, the majority of the book, and that is inquiry. Mm. 
there at please if you would uh if you would tell everyone what it's about and why it's so important so so inquiry basically means asking questions mm-hmm. and there's lots of different ways of engaging in socratic inquiry um, I pull mostly from the work of Byron Katie mm-hmm. and also from the option process of Barry Neil Kaufman. Wow. Um, and it's basically questioning everything. So this is something we do very much in Jewish thought. It's also something that's very strong in Greek thought to just question every assumption. We have a tendency, partly because our egos love to be stubborn and super sure and certain Mm -hmm. to have all sorts of assumptions and to just ride life with those assumptions and never question them. But there's this other way of living of literally asking, is it true? So for example, um, I dealt recently in a workshop with a woman who believed that if she constantly told herself that she's messy, that it'll help her create order in her life. And so Barry Neil Kaufman's style of questioning would be, do you need to believe that you're messy in order to make your house orderly? And that type of question makes people tend to stop and like, huh, do I, right? Or do you need to make yourself angry in order to take care of yourself? So this comes up in conversation all the time where someone will ask me to do something and I don't want to do it. And sometimes I don't feel like it's okay to just say no. So I'll be talking to Dave and I'll be like, okay, well, and this happened and this happened and this happened. And Dave's like, why do you feel like you need to make yourself angry in order to say no? Why can't you just say no? And it's it, terrifying. And it, and it brings me yeah. back and I'm like, oh, right. Okay. Nope. That's it. Just no. I don't have to give a reason. I don't have to explain. I could just say, no, it doesn't work for me. Done. And to just be able to come back to that place and recognize like, no, I don't have to make myself upset in order to get what I want. And that's something we unfortunately as babies learn to do in order for a baby to get fed or changed or played with or whatever it is they need. They actually have to make themselves upset. They don't have another way of communicating other than crying. Wow. That goes back to my childhood psychology course. Okay. Totally. Right. So we actually have to unlearn that. As we get older, we have to learn how to use words and feelings to communicate to ourselves and to other people what it is we need and want. But if we don't unlearn that, so it's like, okay, like we can always change and we can always alter. And here now is an opportunity. Do I have to make myself miserable in order to get what I want? And the cool thing that happens is if you ask someone who's believing, um, I'm messy, right? Mm -hmm. And you say, well, what is it that you're hoping to achieve by believing that thought? So they're always hoping, with a thought like that, they're always <laughs> hoping to achieve neatness. Or I should lose weight. They're always hoping to achieve weight loss. Anybody who believes I should lose weight is hoping to achieve weight loss. But I'll have them imagine. There's like a buffet table of all of their favorite treats and close their eyes and imagine that they're in front of this buffet table and they're believing the thought, I should lose weight. And then I ask them, what do they want to do? And they always say, I want to eat more. Wow. So is it working for them? No. It's not working, right? If you believe you're messy, the last thing you want to do when you're believing you're messy is clean up. So this one woman was like believing that she's messy. And I said, well, what does it do to you when you're standing in your house and there's all your stuff around you and you're believing that you're messy? And this is what she did. Whoa. Right? Her body just like shriveled Cl- up into a clenched ball. Clenched into a, up. Yeah. And her, you could see her breathing got tight and she just shut down. And I was like, well, that's not helping you clean up. I can tell you that. <laughs> <laughs> not getting what you're hoping for. 
Oh my yeah. gosh. Um, all right. Now I'm, I'm hesitant to ask my next question. So I was reading your book and there is a chapter, um, shooting, mm-hmm. um, and the shooting fr- belongs in the outhouse. Yes. And it is a play on the word should. And the first thing I thought of is, okay, then why am I reading this book? Because I should be getting this information. You should be getting that information. Yeah. Can you absolutely know that that's true? Oh, man. Wow. That is, I, no, I didn't even think of that. I, because I am patterned to, you get a book, even if it's a gift, you read the book from cover to cover, even the glossary. Um, <sighs> thanks, Grandma. Appreciate that. Um, so, wow. Holy cow. So, but my question was, why it, it, this is information that's going to help me. So then, therefore, why should I read it if I shouldn't have to read it? I'm confused. Do I seem confused? A little bit, yes. Okay, so I don't I understand the question. concept. I so appreciate the question. Okay. That's the thing that people struggle with the most. Okay. Is with this word should, which is why I dedicated an entire chapter to it. Okay, and I don't feel as bad now. When Thank people you. Are, when people are workshopping the book, mm-hmm. there are groups of people around the world who are workshopping this book. And this is the, you know, when they asked me to come in, this is the chapter that I like. I'm like, okay, let me do this chapter. It's a hard chapter. I'll join your workshop for this one. So why is that? Because our understanding of the word should is confused. So give me some synonyms for the word should. Uh, need. Mm-hmm. Um, required. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm trying to think. Uh, must. Okay, so that's that's a little bit more helpful. So let's say, um, let's say I'm believing I should drink some water now. Mm-hmm. Okay, so am I drinking water right now? No. So I'm saying I must or I need to, right? I must. I have to. It, it should be this way, and it's not this way. I'm not drinking water, but I'm believing that I should drink water. Oh my gosh! I think I just got it. Okay, so I'll give you another example that's easier to understand. Um, imagine it's May in Israel mm-hmm. when it doesn't tend to rain, right? We have pretty regular rain cycles here. So mm-hmm. it's May in Israel and a bride is standing in her outdoor uh, canopy waiting to get married and all of a sudden it starts to rain. Okay. And she's believing the thought, it shouldn't be raining right now. It shouldn't be raining right now. It's the same thing as if she were saying, it's not raining right now. It's not raining right now. Okay. She's doing what Byron Katie calls arguing with reality. And what I experience when I'm believing a should like that is I leave myself and I stop taking care of myself. So if I were standing outside in the rain thinking it shouldn't be raining right now, because I'm not accepting that it is raining right now, right? It's raining. Yeah, no, absolutely. So instead of just being like, oh, it's raining. What do I want to do now? If I'm believing it shouldn't be raining right now. So I'm arguing with the rain and I'm not willing to accept the fact that the rain is there. And because I'm arguing with the rain and I'm not willing to accept it, I can't go put on a raincoat. I can't go inside. I have no creativity. My mind is totally shut down. No solutions. No solutions to the situation. And I'm totally powerless. And I think this is why people stay in unhealthy or abusive relationships. Oh, wow. So if I'm believing, um, you know, my husband shouldn't hit me. God forbid my husband's great. He doesn't hit me. But like if I, if I was in a situation like that and I'm believing he shouldn't hit me, 
So I can't accept the fact that he does hit me. So if I'm saying, oh, my husband hits me, what do I want to do now? I could say, oh, I don't mind being hit, or actually, I really don't like it so much. I'm going to exit the relationship. But if I'm believing he shouldn't hit me, so I leave myself and go hover around him to go like trying to change him, but I can't. You can't take next steps. I can't change anyone but me. Mm -hmm. And so, so accepting reality as it is kind of means the word should just goes out the window. Wow. That, so as soon as you started to do it, and I know I, I, I'm sorry, I interjected while you were explaining it. Um, pop, everything just kind of became clear. It's, it's a control. It's an aspect of control. It's trying to be in control of things that you can't be in control of versus things that you, uh, we almost said should, should be in control. <laughs> are. Are in control of. That's phenomenal. That is awesome. Um, one of my questions that I had written down when I had sent you questions, and this is going to be kind of funny, um, was what, what do you do for someone who's generally got it together? What do you do for someone who doesn't appear or in their in their general conscious self doesn't have any issues? So ironically, um, I'm not going to ask you that question because I consider myself to be that person, mm. but I was having issues with my son and I was getting frustrated and I used inquiry and I'll be darned. Wow. It really helped. So thank you so much. Um, it was, I, I, wow. Cause we all, we're human beings. We deal with thoughts. Thoughts can cause us distress. Like that's just what it is to be a human being in the world. It's one of the reasons why I don't really differentiate mm -hmm. when you're like, oh, somebody who's got it together versus somebody who's like clinically insane or whatever. I don't really differentiate because I'm like, oh, this person's dealing with thoughts and this person's dealing with thoughts. So I'll have people come to me and they're like, oh, I got diagnosed with like this disorder and this disorder and this in the DSM <laughs> manual and whatever. Oh, and yeah. I'm like, you're just a human being dealing with thoughts. Let's see if we can help you and give you tools to deal with thoughts in a way that makes you feel better. That's it. It's wonderful. It seems like you've had a lot of success with it. Um, there's a couple of things I wanted to ask. Um, what's on the horizon for you? Have you thought about doing a podcast? I have. It keeps coming up in the past week. People are like, maybe you should do a podcast. Um, so I absolutely like love the camera. I love meeting people and interacting with people. So I've definitely considered it. Okay. Um, I think I'm kind of waiting for my business to get to a certain point of stability where we have someone who's running all of the administrative pieces, which is not my strength, so that I have more time for creative endeavors like this. And at the same time, we keep writing books. So my husband and I together wrote mm -hmm. two books that we published in the past year. One is called The Size of Your Dreams. And the other I can't is wait to read that one. Exciting. I've had so much required reading for this. Dr. <laughs> Kratka, one of my professors in college, you would be so proud of me. Go on. I'm sorry. Um, and another book that we just published in the past few weeks is called The Cash Machine. It teaches Whoa. people about financial independence and how to learn financial literacy and build financial independence. And it's a love story. What? And we're really into teaching through stories. So I'm working on a book that goes, that's sort of like the partner to hold that thought, but it's okay. the fictional partner. It's called Perish the Thought. Um, so kind of holding all of these creative projects kind of have to pick which one is going to float to the top. But mostly 
being with people is mm-hmm. the thing I love the most. So doing more retreats and workshops. So if any of you guys out there are interested in bringing me out to teach or run a retreat or do a workshop, I'm super excited about Absolutely. that. Absolutely. Um, in the YouTube version of this, uh, I'm putting in the description all of your information, how to get in touch with you. Um, Hannah Mason, thank you so much for being with us today. It's an absolute pleasure. Thank you for having me. Of course. All right, everyone. That's it. Todoba. Leitrod. Yalla bye. 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 Bye.